CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400, and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic. Here with my usual co-host, Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Sports Plus. Uh, Jonah, it's our first podcast of 2024. Uh, There was a discussion at the bar recently as to how long you're allowed to say Happy New Year or how long you should. Is there a moratorium that goes in at some point? Is there a number of days? Is it when you see somebody you haven't seen uh, since the new year? And at what point um, are you no longer obligated, perhaps shunned once uh, a certain date passes uh, to say Happy New Year? I would say it was, as you mentioned, maybe the first time you've seen somebody in a new year, especially uh, that first week after a new year. I think it's entirely appropriate. Uh, A question I like to ask is when is it appropriate, inappropriate to start saying Happy New Year at the end of December? Because some people really get into that even before Christmas. I would say here on January 6th, Maybe we're stretching it a little bit. Um, you know, it kind of seems like we're maybe Rip Van Winkle and we've been sleeping all through the first five days of the new year and just woke up and, and wishing everybody a happy new year when everybody got that out of their system a week ago. But it does feel like a new year and a new in, in a few different ways in sports, whether it's the NFL going into the postseason or some other sports leagues kind of hitting different aspects of the season that we are in a new lunar phase of the sporting world well it is uh the verge of the postseason and i guess uh once your fantasy league ends uh, you can then look on it as pretty much the postseason uh in the national football league uh, the uh the teams are getting ready the teams that have already clinched are resting their players like you would see during the preseason uh of the regular season and now here this is ramping up the games uh that do matter matter incredibly there is a substantial weight to those games that do matter because it's either win or get in or uh playoff seating etc of course we don't need to uh get into the ramifications when you're talking to bills fans because this could be a win or get in lose and stay home situation uh, for the Bills, depending on what happens with the earlier games. And then, of course, uh, the AFC East Championship is on the line uh, Sunday night in Miami Gardens. Uh, But also in the other leagues, like you say, it's about the halfway mark in the National Hockey League. The Sabres have played, I think, 37 or 38 games. Uh, They are at the Penguins tonight as we're recording this before I'm about to uh, get on the plane and, and head to South Florida. Um, so yeah, there are some symbolic breaks, uh, even to, 
to the sports that uh, have a little ways to go before they get to their postseason when it comes to that new year uh, milepost. Um, College basketball is moving into conference play, which is a January event, and college football is about to end. One more game to be played, but it's bowl season, if you will, in that sport, and that's a January type thing most of the time. Yeah, probably the most historic of New Year's Day sports, college football, because uh, it was always the um, the certification of your program especially when I was growing up and probably up until, you know, 20 years ago, whenever, uh, maybe even more recently than that, did you play in a new year's day game or a new year's Eve game? And I recall writing about that when I was a college football writer, uh, that was like calling somebody a pro bowler or an all pro, you know, like your program, this, you know, this is a team that played a new year's day bowl game. Um, that doesn't matter nearly as much anymore. Um, the Royal Rumble, Bills. that's another, Oh, Let's move on to more right. important things. It's another January the, event, the beginning of WrestleMania season. That's a New Year uh, marker that comes around this time. The Rock is back. Uh, does he ever leave, really? Uh, that was a big moment. Was it Monday that was? Yeah, that was last Monday night. It was a big moment. Does he ever leave? He he comes around and makes appearances like that. He hasn't wrestled in, I believe, 12 years. So if he does happen to wrestle his cousin, Roman Reigns, at, at WrestleMania, as rumored, that would be uh first in a long time event for the pro graps game. How big would that be? Is that a Super Bowl level event? Well, WrestleMania in that realm is a Super Bowl level event every year. How big would it be? It would be pretty big. But that something. match as part of the what is called the the Super Bowl of wrestling, if it were that matchup of The Rock coming back, it's it seems based on what I'm seeing on social media, that seems like it's a big deal. Yeah, it, it is a big deal. I mean, The Rock's the biggest movie star, one of at least you know you can make the case that he is the biggest movie star in Hollywood, and a movie star who started with wrestling. So him coming back as frequently as he has is big for the sport and him coming back to kind of tell this story with his cousin and their family history and kind of how that all works in is a big storyline in wrestling. It's something that maybe was supposed to happen a couple of years ago. So I think it's a big deal that it's, it's possibly happening now because there was some belief that the rock was getting too old. He's 51 years old, which is, you know, too old to compete in a lot of sports and borderline, maybe too old to get into the wrestling ring. But, the magic of, you know, sports entertainment allows that to happen. Here's where I'm going to remind everyone of my uh, wrestling ignorance. I know this is probably something that every even casual fan knows, but you're talking about uh, great movie stars. Uh, has, is there a rock John Cena matchup? Is that something that's happened uh, Would that? How big that would be huge, right? So that's what happened. 12 years ago, and then they wrestled again. So it would have been 13 years ago. 12 years ago was the first matchup. 11 years ago, the second time, they made an event at WrestleMania twice, back-to-back. And that was promoted as, I think, once in a lifetime or, you know, the big event that that you're asking if it will be this time. And and it will probably be that again this time. But that's another thing with wrestling, that sometimes they have, uh, you know, the world's greatest match one week, and then the next week, uh, look at that, world's greatest match again. Yeah, how many times did uh, again? I'm throwing back to uh, my youth when I used to know some of it. Uh, how many times did Sergeant Slaughter and Iron Sheik go at it? It seemed like every week. 
So uh, I would think that it's strange to me that those two heavyweights have only had that blockbuster matchup twice. I know. Yeah, well, The Rock hasn't wrestled since then. And well, I know. But I mean, even back then, was it? A, did they regularly wrestle against each other back then? No, they had not wrestled before that first time meeting at WrestleMania, and that was maybe the storyline. That seems like a missed opportunity. Well, it was another situation where The Rock hadn't been around WWE for many years. He was off doing movies. It's difficult to get, and John Cena's in this category now, it's difficult to get these guys back because of insurance and studio contracts they sign with the movies. They really have to be off and on a total break from filming anything and also not signed up for that next movie yet because that's what's kept The Rock from participating in WrestleMania a few times was not being able to get the insurance company to sign off on the potential that he would be injured and not able to uh, shoot his $50 million blockbuster movie this summer. Well, I guess I'll have to allow it. Um, all right. I didn't think we'd go on a little wrestling <laughs> detour there, but here we are. Um, I was trying to make some sort of uh, transition, but it'll be a non sequitur. Bills versus Dolphins uh, Sunday night. Um Pretty much everything for the regular season on the line. I wrote a story about it heading into the season regarding that uh, teams emerging from a highly competitive division uh, actually fare better in the playoffs than the teams that dominate their division. So you want to take a look back on the last few seasons of the Bills in winning the AFC East. They've done it with a comfortable margin over teams like the Patriots, the Dolphins being down. Everybody was kind of down. Well, now that the Dolphins have been a much better team, uh, this is going to be potentially uh, the narrowest and uh, most exciting uh, division title that the Bills have won because uh, of how good the Dolphins have been this year. And, of course, we can debate uh, their record against teams with winning uh, uh with winning records versus teams with bad records and they haven't shown out really against the better teams. So is it a lopsided record? Is it padded, et cetera, et cetera. But the dolphins are still a very good team. They did score 70 points on somebody this year. Uh, they are exciting. They have superstar talent uh, and they have been in the lead of the AFC East for quite some time. And the bills have a chance to pull off the big uh, comeback, the rally five game winning streak to, um, snatch the AFC East crown away from these Dolphins. And if the Bills were to do so, I think that everyone would agree that they look like uh, a team that you do not want to play. You know, the dreaded don't want to play these guys uh, in the in the tournament. And rightfully so, because they're hot and uh, sputtering a little bit, particularly on offense. They have some things to work out still. Uh, you hope that those uh, problems that they faced um, last week against the New England Patriots on offense, if those problems uh, still are um, uh, an issue uh, down in Miami Gardens, then the Dolphins uh, being a much better team, uh, the, the ability to put some points on the board could put uh, Buffalo's offense uh, behind on the scoreboard and create some issues, create some pressure that uh, uh, the Bills might not be able to cope with. However, the Bills have been in it tough these last two games against teams they were supposed to beat. Well, again, that's the yin and the yang, right? It's It gives you concern um, 
they're winning these games, but going to the Los Angeles Chargers and trailing for big parts of that game, they were either uh, behind or behind, tied, or ahead by a possession over the New England Patriots uh, for more than half that game. So, Jonah, I mean, that's a lot of words uh, spewing, uh, tumbling out of my mouth here. Uh, where are you heading into this uh, game on Sunday night in terms of uh, uh, the Bills and their chances? Well, maybe I'll circle all the way back. Maybe I'll try to give you that transition if you want to plug it back in, if I do well enough here. But what I like about this game from an NFL fan and media perspective is if if you were booking it like it was a professional wrestling scripted series some people think the nfl is scripted to begin with uh this is as good as it gets for the sunday night game on week 18 the last week of the season well the schedule is scripted yeah the nfl literally does wait until week 17 is over with before it determines which games are going to be played when uh and in what order but the stakes of the game you don't always get this in week 18 um i think the bills have been in positions before where they had to win the last game to make the playoffs but i don't believe they've ever had quite this situation where win the game, you win the division, you're the number two seed, lose the game, potentially you're out of the playoffs or way down in the wild card. I hope, Bills fans probably don't want this to be the case, but I hope that the Steelers and the Jaguars win, and it is that winning you're in, losing you're out scenario. I wish the Dolphins were in a similar scenario, but to have two of the best teams in the league or two of the teams that have been considered at least AFC champion contenders all season long, uh, playing in the last game for the division title uh, is as good as it gets for week 18. Nobody's resting. And when there was a lot of fretting going on over the Bills losing games earlier this season, uh, it almost didn't get to this point. But I saw that potential and always kind of wanted it to be this case where you have to win that last game in Miami and it becomes a de facto playoff game. And hopefully Miami still has something to play for. Because I think it would be a buzzkill if the Bills were going down there and Miami didn't need the game and it was kind of just a formality. For this to be, you know, the playoffs kind of start uh, this weekend and Sunday night is as close to a playoff game as you can get in the regular season. It's possible that the Bills have clinched the playoff spot, if not the AFC title, uh, heading into that game. Uh, We're going to know a lot more with those early games. But what are your thoughts from a competitive standpoint, the concept that if the Bills have clinched a playoff spot before kickoff, does that create a foot off the pedal situation or hey we we know we're in um is it does it take the edge off and again i'm saying this uh knowing that this is going to be a quote unquote hat and t-shirt game which i've always thought was really silly but it is a big deal to these players to be able to put the hat and the t-shirt on after the game that says afc east champions they know that there's a box for one team, that they, they know that there's a box for the other team. One is either going to be destroyed or sent to uh, Haiti or, or some other country so they're uh, so they can give it to the homeless. Although I think the NFL may have stopped doing that. Um, I think they were starting to get embarrassed by, you know, seeing pictures of down and out people wearing Bill's uh, Super Bowl champions or. Uh, you know, all the different photos that you would see uh, of people uh, traveling around the world and and encountering uh, uh, third world nations wearing um, championship gear from games that uh, uh, went the other way. Anywho, uh, hat and t-shirt game versus uh, we've already made it. Uh, What do you think the mentality is 
uh, Bill, and, and keeping in mind that this is a rivalry game also, but do you think it's possible that the Bills could let up a little bit if they know they're already in? At Especially kickoff, after I, battling back from five and five, six and six in the season, there could be a relief, a a a, a uh, you know an exhale moment where it's like, all right, we did come back all the way from being out of the playoff picture, and the New York Times uh, uh, playoff machine saying we had a thirteen percent chance of making it. We made it. No, uh, but in a way. I don't think going into the game and having been out there uh, at the Bills practice on Wednesday and hearing how the players were talking about, you know, that they're just saying this in a way, but they're, they say they're not going to watch these other games, that they're not going to factor in whether they've clinched the playoff spot before kickoff or not, that maybe even if Sean McDermott can control it, he's going to try to keep the Bills from learning that information. So the Bills are going to go into this game feeling like they need to win and want to win, which is, I think, anytime an NFL player goes out there for a regular season game, they're going to play to win. And winning the division matters so much for seeding and home field advantage in the playoffs and the potential that these two teams could meet again and who's the home team in that game. And if it's the Bills and they've won twice now in the regular season, that's a probably a psychological edge that they might have or you might want to try to gain. I do think that if the game gets out of hand in the first half, you could see either of these teams take their foot off the gas in the second half and say, all right, well, we've lost this battle for the division, but we're going to you know, regroup and go into the playoffs next week. And I see that maybe more in the Miami end with the injuries they're dealing with, possible distraction with Tyreek Hill and, and things have happened at his home this week. And just the general trajectory of their season I sort of could see a situation. This is, there's no other parallels, but I do remember back in 1992, the Bills had lost the last game against the Oilers at Houston. And that was an important game. I believe maybe they would have won the division if they won or something might have happened. Or they, but they lost that game and it looked very bad. Like their season was over. They couldn't go win that playoff game the next week. And as we know, although it took a half a game for that to get started, the Bills did win that playoff game. So I could see a scenario like that for Miami where they're in a bad position to have a difficulty winning this game, but somehow they use this loss and this week to refocus and regroup for the playoffs coming up ahead. Yeah, that definitely could happen. They know what their situation is better than anybody in terms of uh, where their players are health-wise. They might know, hey, look, this game doesn't mean nearly as much as this game next week uh, against you know, fill in the blank against whoever the Dolphins might have. Let's make sure we save Tyreek Hill. We don't need to get him uh, extra wear and tear on that ankle. He's been in a boot all week. You've seen the pictures of him out at his house, um, which is something that you get in South Florida with the media there. Everybody has probably more than one helicopter uh, because of all the news that you have to chase down there in South Florida and the weather and all that type of things that they do. And Buffalo, uh, you know, Buffalo is a strange market. Does any of the stations have a helicopter. I, I don't think I've ever lived in a market where there were no helicopters. You know, there's you always know, the I, traffic reporter, right? Buffalo doesn't have that. I should know this. What I believe, not like I, I work at Channel 4. I hope I'm not disclosing secrets. There's not a helicopter sitting in the back parking lot there. There's not a station chopper that any of us can jump in to, right. to go to our assignments. I do believe there is traffic reporting that comes from a helicopter. Excuse me. I don't know if that's contracted out or kind of how that happens i believe there's a camera in a helicopter somewhere that is accessible by some of the local media but that does it 
But in Cleveland, even in Las Vegas, all the stations out in Las Vegas owned helicopters. They didn't just have, they owned them and they would do things like, uh, they do this in uh, Cleveland also, I think a couple of the stations do, on Friday night football to show that they can get to the most football games. They get in the helicopter, the News 5 helicopter, and they'll go and they touch down. They find fields where they can do it and it becomes an event. The helicopter's here at our game and then everybody gets excited and then they go and they watch Channel 5 later that night to see that their school made it onto uh, the Channel 5 fo Friday football roundup. Um, so that's even kind of frivolous stuff that that stations would do with helicopters. But Buffalo, yeah. Anyways, so all the helicopter footage and probably drones and whatever else they have down there in South Florida media showing Tyreek Hill's house as it was either on fire or being put out, or he's checking out the scene after the fact, you know, and he's been there with his family and he's in the boot. Um, obviously that's the least of his worries this week. Um, and is he going to even care about playing football on Sunday? My guess is he probably is, you know, the whole thing about a respite, but is he going to be, um, emotionally and either and physically uh, up to snuff uh, after the week that he's gone through. Anyway, he's been in the boot still. He has been in the boot for a few weeks from what I understand uh, when not practicing, when not, you know, it's just a precautionary thing, but um, that's a guy that the Dolphins certainly would rather have freshened up for the postseason than to make sure they beat the bills. And if things aren't going right, yeah, that's a guy that we could see taken off the field. Good for the Bills. Um, Let me ask you oh, this. Go ahead. Having you know, lived down there, covered that team, and covered both the teams for the AFC East and covered a lot of these games year to year, what do you think about the crowd factor? I'm reading that it could be 50%, even more than 50% Bills fans or people from Buffalo. I, I don't know how you really equate that because there's a lot of Bills fans that live in Florida and in other states and things like that, but – it's anticipated it could be a split crowd in many ways, as it often is. But in a game of this magnitude and with the Dolphins being as good as they are, because in many years the Bills go down there and they, they've been the better team recently, uh, with all those factors in, what do you think the fact that there will be thousands and thousands of Bills fans in the stadium, does, how much does that help the Bills uh, potentially? It does help the Bills, although I don't know it, it it helps them as much as the weather could be an issue because they've been up here practicing in the cold. You know, they're they're still in, you know, wearing sweatshirts underneath their jerseys and doing all that stuff. And granted, it's going to feel great to go down there. I think that I think it's supposed to be in the 80s. Um, now, I don't know what it's going to be a kickoff. The, the sun will go down. And, and of course, there's the canopy uh, roof there at Hard Rock Stadium. So things could be a little different. Uh, humidity. I think it's supposed to rain on and off throughout the weekend, which is typical of South Florida. So there could be a humidity situation. If their bodies aren't used to it, you could still see some cramping, uh, that type of thing. Probably not as much as you would, you know, during, you know, earlier in the season when things are, are scorching down there, but it's probably a factor. Uh, I'll, I'll say this, uh, this is anecdotal. It's not anything that I can say, uh, is, uh, quantifiable, uh, but, uh, my anecdote is this, one of the most exciting football seasons I've ever covered, uh, was the 2008 Miami Dolphins season. They had gone one in 15 the year before they bring in Bill Parcells, Tony Sperano's the head coach, Jeff Ireland's the general manager. They trade for Chad Pennington, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but was in fact, he was runner up to Peyton Manning that year for MVP because the guy just doesn't turn the ball over. They go 11 and five with the Wildcat 
Everybody remembers that watching this craziness go on, watching Bill Belichick looking like he was about to vomit uh, that game that the uh, the Wildcat was uh, unveiled. Ronnie Brown, Ricky Williams, all these guys. Um, and it was a revolution in football that lasted for a few seasons with teams all over the league trying out this Wildcat or at least putting a package into their system. Um, it was a lot of fun. Heading into the regular season finale, the stadium was still borderline empty. The excitement wasn't there because people, I think there were two things going on. One, there was a dread. The, the Patriots ended up not making it into the playoffs at 11 and five. Also, they lost the tiebreaker to the Dolphins. Um, but there was this feeling, I think, in South Florida that they were always just barely half a step ahead of the Patriots for a good chunk of that season. I think there was just an inevitability factor like, well, we're not going to make the playoffs. We just went one in 15 last year. There's no way the Patriots are going to are, you know, you're just used to it, even with Matt Castle that year. So I think that the Dolphins fans weren't all the way in with their team that season as as entertaining as it was. They just didn't think it was going to pay off. And eventually they did get into the playoffs. They have a home game against Baltimore. And I think that one was finally sold out. But it just was the fans are soft. The fans are soft down in Miami. And I. Uh, I think that the Bills fans, even if there's half of them, they're probably going to, especially if the Bills are up, they're probably going to sound, you know, as loud or twice as loud as the Dolphins fans. You know, I, I think, but there's also this, this belief among uh, Bills fans too, where I think they overvalue that. Uh, I think we saw that in London, uh, you know, Bills mafia taking over. Uh, they didn't take over. Uh, you know, it's like it's there's some things it's it really comes down to the teams, the players on the field. Obviously, the Bills are going to much rather have half the stadium filled with their fans than 100 percent Dolphins fans. Um, but even if it were 100 percent Dolphins fans, like I said, they're kind of soft. I don't I don't know that this is like the Eagles. I mean, the Bills went into Philadelphia and should have won that game. They didn't lose that game because of the Eagles fans. They lost it because a guy hit a miracle field goal to send the game into overtime. The Bills dropped the pass. I mean, you can't – it was in the rain, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, I, I think that the fan thing can be overrated. And it's – you know, it's – it's also kind of tiring to see it as become its own story, right? I mean, fans are covered almost like a beat in this town, like an extra sport. Uh, it's we're not just covering the game; we're covering the fans. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not going to comment specifically on, on some of that, but um, <laughs> how come? I will say, I, but I do think it, it factors in a little bit towards if the Bills win this game, having all of those Bills fans there for crowd shots and for the post game celebration and when Josh Allen's getting interviewed on the field by the sideline reporter and all those Bills fans in the background, uh, it seems to matter a little bit. I mean, I don't know if all the Bills fans are in Miami, then I don't know how many Bills fans are going to show up at the airport when the Bills return. But Bills fan story, yeah, this is, I will say, I think maybe, as you're right, that sometimes that could get overcovered. But this does feel like a week where Bills fan story has taken over Bills football story as much as any other week. And even if this game was meaningless or even if it was occurring in week five, I don't know. It was a big story for London too. Yeah. Um, it was. Yeah. 
That's the a opener, little different. The opener on Monday Night Football against the Jets. I mean, there's all it pretty much any big road game. This is a story that get you know they bring out. Uh, um, I'm forgetting her name, and I think we follow each other on on Twitter also. The lady from AAA. Uh, who's going to tell you, you know, the best way to get to the game and what the average ticket is and all that stuff. And there's going to be the live shot out at the airport. I thought it was funny. Okay. You can sit there and not say anything at all. Uh, I won't mention any stations. I did think it was funny that on Monday people were talking about the bills and bills going down to Florida. I have never seen the airport this busy on a Monday. It was new year's day. People were traveling. People were going home for the holiday. They were here for the holiday. It had nothing to do with Bills fans getting ready to go down to Miami in a week. Oh, geez, I've just never seen the airport like this. Let's talk about the Bills fans and how they're heading down to Miami. Well, and another thing is that people from Buffalo, Bills fans, go to this game. They purchased their tickets long ago and their flights long ago. Some of it is the football game, but a lot of it is getting down to Florida for a week in January when the weather's much nicer and, and a vacation week. And if they're especially if they're leaving on Monday, New Year's Day, uh, this was planned long ago. If the Bills were eliminated from the playoffs or did not w- need to win this game, if they had already had clinched and were playing all the backups, there'd still be thousands of Buffalonians going to that game. I don't believe that the stakes of the game and the AFCs division being on the line and the Sunday night football game and, and the football matters contributed that much to the, uh, you know, swelling of travel to Miami gardens for this game. No, I don't think so. Uh, let's, uh, Oh, we talked about the game. We need to talk about Stefan Diggs. Um, I, I wrote a couple of stories this week about Stefan Diggs. Uh, one was stat based, and just laying out that he is way down in his snap count, which everybody knows. All you got to do is have an internet connection, and you can check out those types of things. Uh, but I took a deep dive into the uh, length of his routes, what type of route, how many uh, he's running uh, in terms of uh, based, but broken down by distance. And 17% of his routes this season. Now, that's a big number for the season, but it's been growing. Uh, it's been growing by the week. Uh, 17% of his route, or I should say his targets, uh, have been at or behind the line of scrimmage. Almost half of all routes, targets, again, I'm sorry, there is a subtle difference between your route, because you can run a lot of routes and not get the target. Uh, so I'm saying the routes in which Josh Allen throws him the ball, um, half of his targets have been five air yards or shorter uh, from the line of scrimmage or even behind it. So there's even negative uh, air yards, which are considered, you know, if Josh Allen is throwing it, you know, three yards away from Josh Allen, but it's behind the line of scrimmage, that would be considered negative two air yards. Um, so that's a lot of Stefan Diggs's time spent close to the line of scrimmage. He's coming out of the game a lot. He came out of the game in a key third down situation against the Patriots. He was off the field for the entire possession. It was a touchdown drive uh, to start the third quarter right out of halftime. He stood there and watched the Bills go eight yards or uh, eight plays in four minutes and score a touchdown. Um, there's curiosity regarding uh, the Bills taking him off the field. Uh, was, uh, I don't know that he's uh, put it out there or not yet, but uh, John War, the Associated Press, was telling me that he had a conversation with Josh Norman in which Josh Norman 
um, told him that Stefan Diggs has been taking himself out of the game. Um, oh, what, what do you make of it? I, people generally are rallying around Stefan Diggs, as you would expect. He is the star receiver. He was an all pro in 2020. He was looking like he was a surefire all pro a month and a half into this season. Since then, he's his numbers have declined and his impact has declined to the point that he was voted uh, first alternate Pro Bowl, which is something that would have seen unimaginable uh, a month and a half ago. Um, certainly not a month and a half into the season. Uh, this is a guy who was looking all galaxy, and now he's borderline relevant. Yeah, uh, maybe after this week, you have a discussion about how the Bills likely have no all-pro players on the team this year or won't have any selected, or, or it would be a long shot, I think. All-pro is a different vote, uh, and we could see Ed Oliver as an all-pro. We could see, you know, Terrell Bernard had a historic season in terms of when you take a look at a combination of his splash plays. Now, maybe his name's not big enough, but the people who vote for all-pro take it very seriously. Yeah. Uh, and it's not the popularity contest that the Pro Bowl is. I read Bill's PR put out a stat about Terrell Bernard with his uh, interception sacks and fumble recoveries. First time a player has done that since Seth Joyner in 1991. And I believe Seth Joyner was second in defensive player of the year voting and an all pro linebacker that year. So I don't know if Terrell Bernard's an all pro, but statistically on paper, numbers wise, you can make some sort of case that he's at least in consideration. And I think a lot of players, Terrell Bernard being the one player who I don't believe is a Pro Bowl alternate who has an opportunity to maybe be an All-Pro. Um, you saw that in the past. Jordan Foyer was an All-Pro in a season where he did not make the Pro Bowl. Cole Beasley snuck in as an All-Pro. Uh, he might have been a Pro Bowler that year, but it was, a, I, I think, a discrepancy into where he was ranked in those two different votes. And one player I think is a sneaky possibility for All-Pro because I do believe there's been a change on the defensive lineup and there's a third cornerback and some people have perceived it as voting for a nickel cornerback. And Taron Johnson is one of the best nickel cornerbacks in the league and I believe could have an opportunity to have a similar situation as Cole Beasley had a couple of years ago where maybe he's a second-team All-Pro at that position because he is the best nickel corner some people have chosen. But to get back to uh, what you asked me about Stefan Diggs, um, you know. By the he, way, it should be noted that the Bills listed their fifth alternates, like which is that's how far they go. Dawson Knox is a fifth alternate. Uh, Terrell Bernard didn't make that cut. Yeah, and I, so, are there six and seventh alternates or is fifth? I don't think so. I think off. that's it. I think it stops yeah. at five. And Stefan Diggs is a first alternate, which is not you know, Pro Bowl proper voted in now, but likely to be not a, a surprise. Player. I mean, that's, that's still, yeah. he'll probably, he'll probably get in the game. Yeah. Um, if he wants to go. Right. And another thousand yard season, even though his production has dipped lately on the whole, he's still having a borderline Pro Bowl year and a borderline Pro Bowl player. And um, he does seem like he's slipped the last few weeks, but I think overall the first half of the season, it doesn't seem like, you know, Stephon Diggs has lost it. He's over the hill. This isn't the same player that the Bills have had over the past few seasons. Um, a lot of this change has coincided with the change at offensive coordinator coming out of the bye week. It just seems like a different philosophy on how to use Stephon Diggs. And as far as Diggs taking himself out of the game and, and missing snaps, I mean, he did that last year. 
I don't recall if that was something that happened the years before, but I definitely recall it happening a lot in the second half of last season. And if you really break down the snaps where he's out of the games, the Bills are much more likely to run the ball or have running formations in the game. Uh, Sean McDermott has said this, that there's certain personnel packages that Stephon Diggs is just not part of. Then he also takes himself out of the game, kind of like C.J. Spiller getting yeah, winded the thing after that, his long runs. The thing that doesn't make a lot of sense, and this is something that I interviewed uh, Devin McCourty for for the second story uh, of the week that I, I wrote about Stephon Diggs. And Devin McCourty, he won three Super Bowls. Uh, he played in five of them. Uh, started 220-some NFL games as a, as a safety. Uh, played for Bill Belichick, you know, the you, – you can laugh at Bill Belichick and his de and his uh, demise this season, but you know, Devin McCourty has credentials. Okay, uh, he has studied trying to stop uh, Stephon Diggs himself as a as a Patriots defensive back, and now he works for NBC Sports as a studio analyst for the Football Night in America broadcast, and he's been studying Diggs uh, this season to prepare for that, and he essentially called it coaching malpractice. Uh, that unless there's something deeper involved, which he believes there is, but on the face, the bills want you to believe that Stefan Diggs is not hurt, that he's out of the game just because of happenstance. And that's just the way the game plan goes. And he's not getting the targets or the quality of targets that he uh, had gotten earlier in the year, because that's just the way Josh Allen's progressions are, are dictating where the ball goes and they're shrugging. Um, uh, so Devin McCourty doesn't really buy all that. Uh, he doesn't think it makes any sense. Um, One thing the coaching I don't malpractice think... aspect well, of it, just because uh, I want to go yeah. to your point about if Stefan did, even if Stefan Diggs is hurt or he needs a blow or whatever, you keep him on the field because he demands double coverage. He demands a defense totally, you know, dedicating or you know, committing resources to Stefan Diggs that allow you to do other things on that given play. And if he's off the field, it's almost like a, 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 a playoff uh, for the defense in some regards, they can totally do uh, other things. And on that drive to start the, the third quarter uh, Sunday against the new England Patriots, Trent Sherfield was on the, on the field for the whole thing. Now, why I don't whether you're running the ball or not. You know, Gabe Davis was out there. He's a good run blocker. Khalil Shakir was out there for some of it. Trent Sherfield, maybe he's you know uh, just one step down from Deion Dawkins as a run blocker. I don't know, but at what point do you not have Stephon Diggs out there just to the threat to pass to keep a defense from putting guys in the box and you know doing why telegraph it so much? And so that is one of the things that McCourty was was saying that. If all things are equal, why is Stefan Diggs watching from the sideline? He's making $25 million or $20 million a year on average. He's your second highest paid player. He's your most dangerous offensive player, not named Josh Allen. And he's not out there. He's out there only 60% of the snaps. Gabe Davis has outsnapped Stefan Diggs six straight games. Khalil Shakir has outsnapped Diggs a bunch uh, over the last month and a half. Trent Sherfield outsnapped him when you combine snaps between uh, the Cowboys and the Chargers games. It was he he played more than Diggs uh, against the Cowboys, which okay, it was a blowout, run heavy game. You could see that, but the Chargers game was not a blowout. The Chargers game was close, 
And Trent Sherfield had 60 snap or 60% of the snaps. Stefan Diggs, 60% of the snaps. So are the Bills telling us that Stefan Diggs is their third, sometimes fourth most dangerous receiver to have out on the field? It 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 defies logic. Yeah, no, and I think the Bills are telling us with uh targets that Stefan Diggs is still, if not extreme number one i think still a guy they're trying to get the ball to um quick point though that mccordy makes the equation doesn't work if he's on the field less and getting the same number of targets and the targets are close to the line of scrimmage as i've mentioned based on the stats then they're just forcing the ball just to get him the ball just to keep what to keep to shut him up to keep him happy to try to it's so if he's on the field for fewer snaps getting the same number of targets that means he's not you can more you can more predict when he's going to have the ball thrown to him, which is also bad strategy. And also because they're more likely to run when he's off the field, it's a big tell when he runs off the field what the Bills are going to do on the next down. But the Bills have had moderate success with this over the last few weeks. It does seem to be schematic and about what they want to do on offense and less about Stefan Diggs specifically. Um, and one thing I don't believe that I've heard a lot of suggestion here, I don't believe the bills are hiding any injury. I mean, they'd be, I don't think so going on for several weeks. They would be, uh, violating NFL injury reporting rules over and over again, if they were not listening to him. And yesterday, as the past two weeks, at least he's been a veteran rest player on Fridays with no body part listed. Now, if they were doing that and not listening a body part and he did have an injured body part, the bills opened themselves up to a lot of sanctions and fines and just not doing th- and the bills don't do that they've been putting i want to state for the record i also don't think he's hurt um but you have to constantly throw out that possibility because it is one of the most uh you know it's occam's razor uh at play um so you do need to as the cynics in us we do need to whether especially since we cover the, the national hockey league too what the team is saying about an injury versus what we know to be true. We need to be, so I'm allowing the possibility that he's hurt, but I don't think he is. I just don't think it's the bills have been putting Josh Allen on injury reports with various ailments when he's still practicing and playing a new finger injury that that showed up on the injury report this week. So I don't think that if the bills are aware of any injury to Stefan Diggs, that they're hiding it. Um, Perhaps Stefan Diggs has something he's dealing with that he's hiding from Bill's trainers. I don't think that's the case either because it does seem like he's still moving well. You don't see him getting trainer attention. To, he did get take a hit a couple weeks ago and get some trainer attention, but you don't see him on the sideline getting his ankles retaped. Um, he's dancing out there at practices. He just doesn't look like he's hiding an injury to me. Um, it seems a schematic choice that the Bills have made that Stefan Diggs has a slightly reduced role in this offense. He's still the number one receiver. Um, slight, no, no, they're... it's not slight. It's it's heavy. Yeah, but he, I don't, but nobody, I don't think somebody else has surpassed him. Even if you want to break down the snap counts, I don't think he's the number two receiver now. I don't even know if there's a one A and a one B. Khalil Shakir has become very reliable. Maybe he's replaced Stephon Diggs as Josh Allen's go-to guy on third down. Um, it sort of seems to align with the two tight end. Um, philosophy and, and so you got Joe Brady coming in and replacing Ken Dorsey maybe running things a little bit different but Stefan Diggs's snap counts have gone down and targets have gone down since Dawson Knox has come back it just seems like a different way the Bills are playing offense that doesn't use Stefan Diggs 
the same way as they did earlier in the season. I do think it's very interesting going into this Miami matchup because that is Stephon Diggs' best game of the year. Three touchdowns and was uncoverable. He was open by 5, 10 yards on some of those catches. And covering that in the Miami locker room after the game, there's a lot of questions about Miami not shadowing him with Xavier Howard. And Jalen Ramsey was not back from his injury yet at that point. Now you got this game where Jalen Ramsey's playing, Xavier Howard's not. How will Miami defend Stephon Diggs? Uh, maybe there's a way the Bills are using Stephon Diggs as a decoy that's getting other people open. Uh, I think it'd be interesting to watch how it plays out in this game, if it's a continuation of these trends that you've researched and written about, or if the Bills find a new way to utilize Stephon Diggs, and if maybe there's something that they're saving for the playoffs. I mean, I don't know if it's that wise because the Bills have been in this playoff mode for the last few weeks, but I think it's certainly possible but that there's some plays and some strategies that they're going to use to find digs for that they're not showing now and, and that we'll see in a week or two. He has a great numbers career against the Miami Dolphins. Uh, he's played against them eight times, including the playoffs, his record seven and one. And in those eight games, 46 catches, 632 yards, seven touchdowns. Uh, and of course uh, you mentioned that week four game, six catches, 120 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, so, yeah, they have trouble with him, and this could be a game, and it's funny because Devin McCourty uh, predicted it too. This is probably a, a big game for Stephon Diggs, uh, and that doesn't render everything irrelevant that we were just talking about. It's not moot. I mean, it's still an issue heading into the playoffs. The Bills have needed to win for a long time. They needed to beat the Chargers. They couldn't afford just to put Stephon Diggs on the sideline for 60 or for 34% of the snaps. Um, or whatever it was against the Patriots to let other people out snap him just because they had, they could afford to uh, save him for the playoffs. They had to win these games and they were tighter than expected games. Um, Josh Allen was out there on the field. Um, when he didn't, if you didn't think the bills needed Stefan Diggs. Uh, and they could afford to rest him against the Chargers and the Patriots, then Kyle Allen should have been on the field uh, late in the game for the Bills against the Patriots uh, and Josh uh, Allen not taking unnecessary hits, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we've talked a lot about the Bills, Jonah, and we wanted I, I wanted to keep this one short because I have to get to the airport. Uh, let's quickly talk about the Sabres. Uh, they come out of the uh, their little – uh, mini break. They had a few days off, which seems unusual for them. They were playing a lot of games. Uh, uh, and then they finally get a few days off after uh, playing in Ottawa and losing that game badly. They come back and, as expected, uh, beat the uh, Montreal Canadiens. I'm saying as expected, not because of the Canadiens, but just because the Sabres win and lose, win and lose, win and lose. Uh, now they have the Penguins uh, tonight down in uh, in Pittsburgh, so I guess you'd expect them to get blown out by the Penguins. They haven't won two games in a row since November 1st. They've done it once this entire season. Um, Don Granado seems like he's on the ropes. Uh, what do you think? I guess what, what, what's your what's your summation on the on the Sabers here as we uh, as I tap my watch? Well, you know, they, they, they looked good in winning at Montreal, not just that they won and by the score, but how well Devin Levi played, scoring twice on the power play. They won 6-1, to one, but they could have won that game 2-1. to one. They, they, they had the 2-1 to one lead after two periods and could have parked the bus. In Probably should have had a shutout. 
Rasmus Dahlin with a with a bad play and the Canadians score shorthanded uh, to yeah, get their one goal. Devin Levi, a shutout, returning back home would have been a nice story. Also a disallowed goal before the Sabres scored. So Devin Levi played well. I don't know if he played absolutely lights out and won them the game. But it was one of the Sabres, I think, more complete games of, of getting their pace and offensive game going, also playing pretty good defense, say, for uh, the Rasmus Dahlin play, having the advantage in the analytics and the shot attempts and things like that, and getting good goaltending, which they've gotten on some nights this season, but not every night, and haven't been able to really rely on any goaltender or that part of their game. Uh, the Sabres play in Pittsburgh tonight, and, you know, the Sabres need every win they can get. So this is an important game, uh, getting to that, you know, win two in a row, perhaps win three in a row so people stop mentioning that they can't do that. But the real important stretch comes up after. It's a six-game homestand, longest homestand of the season. There's some bad teams in there, San Jose, Chicago. Uh, the Sabres are slightly under 500 at home so far. It's a very important stretch for the Sabres to string off some wins, to get their first winning streak of the season, to uh, you know pull out 10, 11 points out of a six-game homestand if they can manage that will change where they are in the standings now and I think where they're going and how they feel about themselves. And the Sabres are far out of the playoff picture, all the projections and the percentages. And, uh, you know, they're only six or seven, I think seven or eight points out right now, but a lot of teams to pass. They played more games. They're really going to need a, a tremendous second half of the season to make the playoffs. But to get to the point where they're almost there, where the season still matters, playing meaningful games in March and April and almost make the playoffs, uh, I think is important for this group and this coaching staff perhaps, because if it keeps going along, win, lose every other game, and you keep falling further and further under 500, then that's a pretty steep regression from where this team was a year ago and even where this team finished up the second half of last season. So that's what they really need is a, a, a finish like they had the last couple seasons to, to say that even though they missed the playoffs, they ended the season no worse than they did uh, the year before. It would be a miracle based on the uh, the trend with uh, with the Sabers, and I know that there's a lot of luck when it comes to injuries. But if they can stay healthy, uh, that would go a long way uh, to to making that happen. But as we know in hockey, I mean, uh, a major injury for an important player. Uh, is always right around the corner, it seems, with the Sabres, and they don't do well when that happens. Uh, they have not been a team that can show that it can overcome an injury to a Tage Thompson, to a Jeff Skinner. Uh, they just really struggle. Uh, and if something were to happen, then it, that really does hurt their chances. Interesting, you know, Kyle Oposo, if you were to talk about him before the season as somebody who would be dealing with a, a week-to-week injury in January, uh, fans might shrug and say, well, that just gives uh, a young player a chance to fill in that role and, and get some playing time. But Kyle Oposo, over the last couple of weeks, uh, has been scoring some goals. And uh, whether you believe in culture or the leadership stuff or whatever, uh, uh, you know, he is a guy that the players on that team really respect and, and look up to. So Caliposo being uh, out week to week with that lower body injury probably is a little bit of a, a loss, uh, something for them to overcome. Um, obviously not as big as some of the others, uh, you know, Jack Quinn and, you know, 
whatever, fill in the blank on a guy who's been hurting out for a, a while. Well, and um, the top line, they, they, they've alternated injuries. They've only played about half the games together with Skinner, Thompson, and Tuck. Jeff, Jack Quinn missing almost all of the season. The Sabres haven't had a full healthy lineup on many nights this season at all. Yeah. Um, Jonah, do we want to do a quick spin through the uh, Bronstein uh, power rankings on the big four basketball? Uh, who's doing what? Bonaventure, Bonaventure's still number one. Bonaventure's still number one. Bonaventure's 10 and three after winning their Mac op- or A 10 opener at VCU, and they play another uh, kind of tough game at Richmond today. Uh, their Ken Palm net rankings are, are as high as they've been all season long and, and pretending to a possible you know, on the bubble at large team, but definitely maybe a team that's in that NIT mix. Not that that's where they want to be, but, you know, that's pretty good for where they've been. And even though they lost to Canisius, Canisius lost again last night. And if we're power ranking the local teams, Bond is definitely having a better season so far than Canisius is. I like putting you on the spot. Yeah, and there was some, I think the last time we talked about this, I was uncertain who to put at the bottom of these rankings, whether it was Buffalo or Niagara and that there would be a game between the two that could really decide who was really the worst. And UB gave up a 10-point halftime lead to lose that game against Niagara. Wasn't entertaining second half, how competitive and, and back and forth in the last couple minutes that was. Um, but Niagara won that game on UB's home floor to kind of assert their position as the third team in the Big Four. And Niagara won last night in Manhattan, so maybe they're chasing after Canisius to, to kind of be the second team in these mystical power rankings ub turns around and wins their first mythical power rankings not mystical i don't let's not give them that much all right okay uh credence they're not mystical i don't think that they're this is not a hat and t-shirt power ranking okay um but then ub wins their first mac game and i think it's important for their you know psyche and emotions i don't know if it means a turnaround season where they're going to win many more games but some of these the Central, Eastern, Western Michigan teams are, are not good in the MAC and beatable for Buffalo, even if Buffalo is the bottom-ranked team in the MAC coming out of non-conference play. All right, Jonah. Thanks for this. A rare Saturday morning record. Um, and we got a big but... Bandits game tonight. If people are into oh, that, right, right. Yeah. Buffalo what are Bandits. Your thoughts, are Jonah. Now well. that you're getting as as a Channel Four reporter, you're out at at uh, Bandits more. What's your what's your take on bandits crowds versus the local college basketball scene and those crowds that they get? Well, the bandits average twelve, thirteen thousand and the opener and got over sixteen thousand, over seventeen thousand in the championship game, over eighteen thousand. They've sold out their building before. No college basketball game draws anything like that. I mean, they don't play in gyms that size, but even when they do occasionally play at the arena. They don't sell it out. It would have to be a game against Syracuse or an NCAA tournament game. So just terms of raw numbers, you know, they're bigger crowds for professional lacrosse. I mean, the Bandits crowds aren't quite what the Sabres draw, but they're close. And that Bandits opener crowd was bigger than all but three of the Sabres home games. So it's a it's a big draw and it's a big deal. And I think one thing I we've had this conversation on this podcast about the third franchise and debated who that was and even throwing individuals in there or originally that was a, an individual Joe Macy and having covered a lot of these home games over the past year and a half. It's solidified for me that at least right now, the bandits are the third franchise in terms of fan support and fan interest 
is a professional league, how successful they are. Um, you know, we've talked about it in the context of stacking your sports cast or organizing the front page of your sports section. Not everybody in the media seems to follow this, but I think that, uh, you know, the Bills are the biggest deal, Sabres, and, you know, Bandits come in after that. Uh, Buffalo, U University of Buffalo Sports and the Bisons and colleges, I think there's times when that can vacillate and they can maybe be that third franchise. But right now, as good as the Bandits are and, and the people that enjoy the atmosphere of that game and it's a lower-cost ticket, that seems to me like the third biggest event in Buffalo sports right now is a Bandits home game if the Sabres and the Bills are on the road. All right. Well, the Buffalo Bills have a chance to keep us an NFL market uh, for a few extra weeks here. Let's see how deeply they go before it officially becomes – uh, at least in Western New York uh, tradition, the uh, hockey season uh, beginning or the bandit season slash big four basketball season. Jonah, thanks for this. And uh, thanks to everyone out there for listening to Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. Please give us a like, a rating, a subscribe, hit that button, whatever button it is, uh, hit it. The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716 716- 630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. We'll